everybody. Welcome to Singular XQ, the podcast that raises your intelligent quotient on all things experience and transformation. I'm really excited to have with us today, Fred Garantabi, the CXO of FGX International, better known as Foster Grants. We are here today to talk about five cool things about digital transformation. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jen. Glad to see you and hear you. Glad to see you and hear you. So we're gonna get started because we have five really cool topics to talk about here today. I've got my notes. So the first thing we wanna talk about is the fact that you've been engaged to engage in a, an organizational wide transformation. And we've talked a little bit about this casually about velocity and transformation. How do you judge what the right speed is to bring change to an organization? That is a very good question, and I will admit it is one that is still being answered. I think the important thing to understand is that there is no right or wrong speed that is uniform across, you know, your your career or or across different companies. It is completely unique to each, and I think it's inherent with the assignment you're given. And I think part of it is, you know, transformation generally can be a couple of different things. It could be something that is less invasive, but happens almost in an additive way in its own swim stream. So I've been in companies where they say, okay, we need to, digital transformation for us is, is additive capabilities. It's adding people and loosely connecting them to the existing organization, but that organization remains largely untouched. Then there is a more invasive nature, which is somewhat what I'm involved in, which is you are really working with others to transform the business as a whole. And that is both outward and inward. And the inward part is, it is not just saying, okay, we're going to do digital stuff now, or we're going to focus on the consumer first. It's very much about, you have to reprogram thinking to a degree, but also be respectful of the fact that the people you're working with have long tenures and are experts in their respective functional areas or field or, or both, right? So it's less about telling people the way you've been doing things is not doesn't apply anymore. It's what you're doing applies. Here's how now it functions in the context of the current business business landscape and, and the market. So I think that the time comes down to a few things. And it's always this balance between as an individual or somebody who's leading a team, because very often transformation is a end state of your job, but you have other things. Like for me, for example, I run our digital and e-commerce businesses, and there's very much a day-to-day operational tactical aspect of that, which is happening now. As for transformation, it tends to be more aspirational. It's like, okay, in a year or two years, this is where we want to be, and these are the strategies that we're following. But you're really always doing these two things together. So I think there is, what is the right amount of speed necessary, not only to make sure that you are getting people rallied behind you, without steamrolling them, which is not the way to do it, but also getting your job done. And it, it, is, it is a balance. It's, it's, it's a bit of a tightrope act. So I find that, you know, part of it is how do you, you know, if, if you have to get something done because it is your mandate, it's required for the business to be successful, there's a revenue or growth component tied to it. What you have to do is set the speed that is right for you and the team to get that job done, but make sure that you're always staying tethered and using every milestone as a teaching moment for other people in the organization. And teaching moments saying that, okay, 
we're on this work stream here. Here's how we're going to bring you in. Here's you're a stakeholder. You're somebody who's a contributor. Use that opportunity to teach. Worst thing you can do is say, okay, well, we got to move fast on this. So I'll call you when I need something. That'd be the end of our conversation. So you do have to be able to actually run multiple sort of mental work streams at once. One is getting the job done and whatever the tactical or just even the strategic deliverables are at the end. The other one is understanding that at each one of these milestones, you have to help enroll people that are outside of that group to say, okay, this is why we're doing this, this is what we're doing. Here's how your function, here's the things that you do play an integral role in this, or these are things you may already be doing, but with this extra layer, there's a slightly different approach we have to take. So I do think it is really less about there's one speed. I think it's more about there are multiple objectives at any given time and they will work at slightly different speeds. So it really becomes about the cadence of how do you inform, how do you teach, how do you do, and how do you balance those three things, right? And so- That's so interesting, yeah, because I'm finding very much so with our clients, even though we might be engaged for a very specific digital delivery purpose, or even for a larger strategic transformational purpose, we're finding that it's about humans and having to teach and yeah. having to coach really, because this is the first time in history where we've seen, we're seeing multiple revolutions, industrial revolutions in one, one lifetime. Yeah. So we have people who've been around in our in our client organizations for, for years to see through the first internet revolution, right? And they're just getting comfortable with that, really. And yeah. now we're already on the crux of one and possibly even two more. We've got Industry 4.0 right here, next yeah. gen. Who knows what metaverse is going to bring, right? So, so it's all becoming the speed is really dizzying. And it's about, you know, human factors. I love hearing you say, it's not about steamrolling people. Cause we all know when we read these case studies about agile and digital transformations, some people come in and just raise the field, right? They just start over from scratch, right. but that really doesn't work because the human fallout is too great, right? Right, and I think also the thing to keep in mind is transformation is not replacement, it is reinvention and it's augmentation. So I have- and Adaptation, right? And and adapt adapt right, and I am witness yeah. to cases where it is a bit of raising the field. I don't agree with the approach because I don't believe that, um, you know, it's kind of like when you think about innovation processes, right? And innovation is generally thought of as, you know, depending on who you are. And I've been in companies where I've been the innovation lead. I've also worked with other, other innovation leads. And depending on where you sit in the business and how closely tied you are to its growth or its, its activity on a month-to-month -month basis, you're either really far from the problem or really close to it. And the closer you are, the more capable you are of understanding how all the pieces work. The further you are, the less concerned you are. And, and so, you know, we used to have people talked about blue sky innovation. Blue sky is generally that. It's like, it doesn't have to be practical right now. It just has to be a really big, big idea. It could be five years from now, but that's the point, right? And so if you imagine, then there's people who are like, well, I don't worry about innovation because I just got to get my job done. And so I think the the world really needs to live somewhere in between. It needs to be all shades of this. And so yeah, if you send somebody in who doesn't have the, savvy or the chops to run a day-to-day -day business and grow it and have them take over the company and raise the field, it's going to fall. If you stay in place and you just worry about the operational and say, okay, innovation and transformation will come when it does, we'll worry about it when we have time, the company will also fall. So it's the balance between the two. And that's why you don't raise the field because you look at a company like the one I work for has built you know, over a hundred years of successful business practices, product, everything else. 
So it's not like, okay, well, there's nothing here to work with. We have to kind of start from scratch. That's the antithesis. Really what it is, is the business has reached a point where it's built this success. Now it's setting it up for the next hundred years. I mean, I'm being very optimistic, right? Setting it up for at least the next 10 years of growth because the criteria for growth or the means by which you achieved it, you know, five, 10 years ago is vastly different than what it is today and what it will be five years from now. Yes. So it's and, not and about the, and the speed of change is 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 accelerating. It really it, yeah, it's become a curve. Yes, and the thing yes. is, and so the a good transformation takes into account where the business has been and and where it is today and really where you want it to go, right? You know, transformation is not rewriting history yeah. and going back start with that that, that yeah, current so. state, the future <laughs> state and then like get your most strategic right. and you deliver target state and keep working incrementally because that future state's going to change, right? So right. great. Let's talk about topic number 2. We talked a little bit before the show about traditional models of business which you've just sort of hinted at here colliding with digital transformation. Where are those most specific most painful points that you see as a leader of transformation between those traditional. So take, you know, a guy who's been around 15, 20 years, he's doing really well, he's really successful, but you're asking him to think about things in a different way. Where is that traditional business model mindset really holding you up? Well, let's, let's go back for a sec, because I think the first thing really is, you know, it's never about one person's mindset. And what I found is, and I've been fortunate in companies like this one and others that I've been at, the people, like good people are always willing to learn, right? Or they're willing to collaborate. And again, I don't say learn in a condescending way, like, well, you'll come around in my way. It's more about, they understand the company is on a precipice of something that requires this transformation. They are enrolled as leaders and that's what they have to do. And that's what we're all committed to doing. Now, that being said, it never comes down to one person or one process. What it comes down to is companies are seldom built, any company, and with the exception of some, you know, the big tech companies that we know now. And I would argue I'm not close enough to, the, to those to say they don't have their own challenges, right? Everybody paints themselves into a corner at some point, no matter how forward thinking you are, right? But what I can say is that generally companies will, are not really ever built to scale or to grow. They, they, go, they grow as they go, right? And what happens is when you get to a point where the demand for speed, the demand for efficiency, the ability to move fast, the ability to be opportunistic while balancing that with a strategic mindset, comes down to, you know, how well is your foundation set in the company? And it can, it, it's all sorts of things. It's processes. It's, you know, like your legal and financial processes. It's logistics. It's, do you have the right skill sets doing the right job? Do you have the platforms? Do you have the capabilities, right? And processes, which are built by people and entail all of these things, are generally not always designed to scale. They are designed to meet the immediate need. And sometimes they're forced into that realm. So I think inherently the, the challenge never comes from an individual. I mean, I've, I've not really seen too many cases where people fold their arms and they're like, no, <laughs> it's not that. It's more people understand their sphere of business and the company, the companies as a whole are generally built around a collective mindset. And if that collective mindset has been following a certain set of practices or the, the rules of the game were different, it's unreasonable to expect that if you come in and you're like, okay, <clears throat> we have to be consumer centric, digitally focused, you know, we have to fine tune processes, we have to think about things in an integrated way. It's not even so much about being digital, it's about being an integrated business, like mm-hmm. end to end. It's all the way from like the traditional side of the business where you're really running a great uh, commercial business, you are, you know, you have a, a major presence in the mass market. 
But that's also about like the, how digital weaves into that and grows the business. And everybody, we know at this point, that's critical. It's almost trying to reverse engineer a bit what you know to be a set of practices inherent in native digital thinking into companies that didn't have to worry about that at a point in time. So I would say the friction points are never about a person. It is about you are walking into a house that was built by the original owners and handed down to new owners year after year. And that house was modified in different ways. It was tweaked and it was, it's always suit to purpose. No one ever sat down with a raw plot and said, we have to design this to be functional 100 years from now. They just don't. Right, right. right so yeah. that, and it's the same premise with businesses. Very few businesses are designed with that in mind. They evolve as need dictates. Now, that being said, newer businesses, I wouldn't even say startups. I'm saying a lot of the businesses that are the new sort of the new industrial revolution of the last 20 years, the Googles, the Amazons, the world. While I don't believe they ever knew how big things were going to get, I think that inherently the collective mindsets of founders, and it was inherently different, and there's a certain speed associated with that in, in this sort of what people always called an intangible world, but it's highly tangible. But you're not, you're not moving stones, you're, you're moving concepts, you're moving code, it's interesting. Yes. But um, the point is, is that I think really it is less about one major challenge, it is a collection of, of small friction points that add up. And those generally infrastructure, come- Infrastructure is really the problem, right? It's, you know, it's infrastructure. And again, like- Technology and product to get out of their silos and work together in the room, cross-functional right. yeah. collaboration. Yeah, it's really hard. And using it, like finding measures that apply to all of you equally, because, you know, I find that the concept of ownership of certain kinds of KPIs and things like that are often contested in digital transformation right. and um, getting to understand how, you know, the KPIs are different now. The game is playing and the KPIs apply across functions and not just we all own these uh, KPIs and we all have to put yeah. our put our put our hat in the ring as a ways to compete for for achievement of those KPIs right and, I, and right. that's really interesting well no matter where you go I mean whether it's big company small company traditional company non-traditional company what it really comes down to is infrastructure processes the landscape of what the business has thrived on it's all a product of people you know it didn't sprout up itself and people kind of walked in when they felt it was the right time so what you're inheriting in a traditional business is not only its history and its success, but you're also inheriting years and years of, of all of these things, this foundation that was built progressively around people at a time where it was, those things were relevant and most effective. And as the business landscape is picked up the, on this accelerated curve, it's getting harder to go backwards and, and try and retrofit those things. So you're always playing this game of, I, it's a it's a great business. Why do I want to come in and like raise the field, as you said? And that's not really the thing. But what you do have to do in certain cases is you do have to do more than just patching the dam. You do have to rebuild a few things along the way. It's a renovation. down those things that are preventing you from getting through the door, right? You know, right, it's a renovation process. Less of a is you don't destroy and rebuild from scratch because that's not practical. What you do is you you renovate the place, the pieces and the places that will make the biggest impact without disrupting the legacy, the foundation that's been built to date and the success that's been built to date. So, yeah. Okay, now I'm gonna to jump to topic, <laughs> cool thing number three, uh, in, uh, intergenerational brand engagement. 
you you mm -hmm. talked to us about some interesting things that are specific to foster grants that and FGX International. Can you talk to me about what kinds of challenges you're facing with the intergenerational brand engagement and what kinds of creative solutions you're coming up with? Well, I, I think you know, like many brands that have a long legacy, we you know legacy often is it can can easily become stigma, and that's that's the you know the slippery slope, right? Is Foster Graham, for example, well-known American brand. People remember the TV commercials like dating back years. You know, people in my age group, people older, even some younger, remember the brand uh, because we had a really long history of like, yeah, you know, we had Brooke Shields and Raquel Welch, we had all these different things going on, and these are like sort of these iconic, like you know, and back back to the fifties, the Foster Grants and the Invisible Man. Remember? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so a lot of people remember these things, and also just by sheer virtue of. Uh, of this market presence we built, people see the brand all over the place to the credit of our teams. You walk into a Walgreens or to a, tar a Target, a Walmart, whatever, you're going to see the product there. And so it's this branding, this impression that's that's very difficult to do for a lot of brands. We have the benefit of that. However, what it comes down to though is that, you know, at a point there's always this struggle between legacy and, and brand perception and stigma and stigma tends to be the darker side of the of that equation which is it's the stuff about the brand that you don't want people to sit on too much because that could that can almost isolate you in a certain way that you don't want to or, or silo you in a way you don't want to be siloed and a great brand i think about that i believe really i mean they always stand out to me as like a brand who did like just a bang up job of bringing themselves back into the market it was polaroid Mm, yes. And so remember, like ever, all of us have Polaroid cameras. It was all the rage. It was the coolest thing ever. I would argue it's still time, especially. Yeah. 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 But um, I mean, it, for me, it was an icon, <clears throat> you know, iconic memories in my childhood of like being able to photograph my friends and get photos, you know, right on the fly. And then what happened is eventually, like, you know, as the digital age came up, digital cameras came in, uh, smartphones came in, and then it became about, okay, how do we effectively replace what's the new Polaroid of our generation, right? And it became really the new Polaroid was basically smartphones and Instagram. That's what it was. Almost to the point where Instagram early on was, was trying to mimic the Polaroid feel a bit with filters yeah, and borders. And this, Geomorphic design at its best. Right. But, and so Polaroid faced this very difficult challenge. It's like, okay, how do we sell a traditional piece of photography hardware with a limited capacity of film, material, whatever it is, in this world where everybody has a you know basically an hd camera on their on their phone and they don't have to wait for things to print they don't have to pay for materials it just it's there right but then what happened is as people got with anything with technology people got over that hump and they were like oh well i kind of miss being able to touch and feel things you know and so polaroid was smart they said you know what why don't we bring the two together and so, I don't know, it's quite a few years ago, at least I don't know, eight to 10 years ago, they really started relaunching. And so, I mean, my daughter, for example, is a cool little blue Polaroid camera. It's super funky. It my daughter has the same one. Yeah, it has a digital screen. Like aqua um, blue, right? Yeah, you get, also, you get a little like paper you put in there and she loves it. And she has access to an iPad and iPhone and everything else. But there is something joyous about that tangible yeah. nature. So. I think reinvention is a big part of that. And Polaroid was a brand that could have gotten stuck in the stigma and died with many other brands that, that were, you know, iconic to our generation, but they didn't, right? Now, when you look at like Foster Grant, we have a huge amount of legacy and to the credit of our 
marketing teams and all of our teams collaborating. It's really, it's bringing the brand back to a different place. The challenge really is for any brand, it's the blessing and the curse of having history. And that's what it comes down to, right? People look at small brands as being highly disruptive because they don't come into the, not because they're bigger, better or whatever. It's just, they, they come into the market with no stigma. And they're just like, we can be whoever we want to be on the spot. We're just going to invent it and we're going to make it so. And it often works, right? So you think about a lot of these, like, for example, new eyewear brands, they come in and are like, this is our shtick, you know, like brands out in the, in the street two to five years are already like doing well because they're like, okay, this is our shtick. We don't have to worry about, you know, who we were before because we're now, we're, we're, we're all about now and the, and the future. So they create the persona they use online as this springboard because you can, you know, historically, if you wanted to get out into the mass market, you had to spend years with a real, well, well-schooled, well-educated commercial force, sales force going out there and selling to stores, getting things on the shelf, marketing them in these particular environments. And so it was really about, it was about scale. It was about market penetration. Now the rules have been bent because you can do some of these things or at least in, in the early stages completely online. When you're a brand that's been around for a while, you can't just show up and say, hey, we're somebody else today. So what you have to do is you do have to go through this process of understanding what do people know about the brand? What, do, what is people's perception of the brand? What is it that we are doing well that it, that's, you know, encourages people to buy the brand or gives, oh, it's like, oh, of course I want this. But equally, what are the things that dissuade people from the brand? What make, what, what turns people away from the brand? And it's very often the same thing, oddly enough. It's what makes us great is all of it for one group of people also makes us less appealing for another group. And it's very generational in that way. So Foster Grant, which is, a, you know, started out as a sunglass brand. Most people know it's for the reading glass brand. So it's very much about, you know, we've got this great base of customers who, you know, work their way into the product over time, but we also have, you know, other products that are age agnostic. So how do we really kind of pull ourselves out of the, not so much like pretend we don't have a history or legacy. I don't think that's the intention at all. It is, you know, creating relevance to a generation of consumers who would either don't know the brand or know the brand, but have a, a stigma or a certain consideration about it that doesn't work in our favor, right? Why would somebody, for example, buy sunglasses from, I don't know, name an internet brand. There's so many of them, right? Same price point. They look pretty cool. They're probably about the same, you know, general premise, but you know, these companies kind of come up and they're like, okay, we're going to create a persona. It's like, it's kind of like online dating. Like you're going to create this persona and that's what you're going to show the world. Nobody knows who you are. You're creating it right then. And, you know, newer brands have the ability to do that. Older brands have to shift minds, shift perception while also preserving all the things that make us tried and true and make us trusted. Right. And so I think that's really the challenge is it's really, how do you keep your legacy and use it as a, as a power versus trying to abandon because I've seen companies do that too. And they're just like, nope, that wasn't us. Just kidding. And then you know, they pretend they weren't that brand and they come on, they're like, you know, they're wearing hipper clothes now. And they're like, well, I'm not that I'm this. And it's, it's very disingenuous and people see right through it. There's you been know? many, many awkward uh, examples. Oh, of too many, to, too many to state. And I think when done well, 
you don't have to do that. What you do is you, you stand behind who, who you are, but it is not an overnight process. It does take time. And yeah. my colleagues and my close peers will attest to it. It's, it's a lot of time and work and it's a lot of minds against it because you have to attack it from every angle, you know, kind of the benefit of looking at an integrated model where digital is very, you know, digital and consumer centricity is front and center is that it is a way for you to pivot a little bit quicker or to make impact quicker within the foundation of what you already have. Right. So let, let's let's talk about this for a second. So now this this is requiring requiring innovation. So and we've also talked earlier before we started recording about processes for innovation and and building new processes. So yeah. what kinds of new processes do you like to build when you come in to lead a transformation that support information? What are the crucial processes that have to be in place? You know, I I think we, we probably spoke about this a bit before we before we met about the concept of being agile, or the concept of agile itself. Mm-hmm. Now, agile in itself is a is a set of principles. It's not. I mean, there are hardcore applications of agile, and you very often. I mean, I'll be honest. I've been in that game for quite a few years, and I've worked across quite a few companies where we've implemented in different flavors, but it's never textbook. And the reason is is that unless you build a company and a team that exactly mirrors, for example, like the ideal scrum team or the textbook scrum team, it's very difficult to do. Does that mean you don't do it? No, what it means is that you take the best parts of it and you work them into your That's company. what people don't understand, that Scrum is a tool, but the Agile itself- It's, it's, it's a it's framework, ability, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's the ability to form a process that works for you that puts certain principles as guiding as guiding um, principles, right? You know, yeah. you and philosophy think, and then there's methodology. Exactly. Yeah, and so there are frameworks, like Scrum is a framework, right? It's yeah. an implementation of Agile that has a very, um, some well-known sort of guardrails and sort of rules for, for, for the road. and and people can follow them pretty closely and it works for them, right? But I think more importantly, Agile is a set of principles and you see lots of flavors. But I think coming back to your question of like how, like what is the right way to run innovation? And really at heart, I'm a product developer. It's what I've always done. I started in engineering and worked my way really into capabilities building and what you would call digital product development, always in the service of consumer facing organizations, always in the service of marketing, right? So, and sometimes those, those products were more, how do you say they were more for the experience than they were practical. And then there were some things that are just inherently practical. And so I spent a good deal of my career looking at the world through, you know, the digital lens of what is, you know, what's the digital product, right? Even if you're a company that sells products traditionally, like one of my old taglines that I always used to use, and I still try and pull out once in a while is, you know, uh, services are a new product, right? And so when you think about if you're a company selling something, it's cosmetics, it's eyeglasses, it's apparel, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, there's two there's two layers of product. There's the product you sell, the physical tangible product, either that you sell in the store or online, shows up in a box, person takes it out. There is then also the service layer around it, which is what adds the value, right? Which is what are all the things either inherent to discovering that product, exploring it, and then enjoying it past the purchase, after purchase that make it so. And that is really what product development is. And inherently, innovation is that. I mean, innovate, there's a lot of ways to look at innovation. Innovation in business processes, that could be any number of things. For me personally, the most important part of an innovation process is to think about and to employ some of these artifacts where you are looking at value first. And uh, how do I explain this? 
value is really what your end product is. Your end product is not trying to build what was on the original plan, the brief, whatever. The end product is whatever is the most valuable thing at that point in time. That is what Agile supports well. And one of the biggest challenges I run into in any organization here amongst my teams, we talk a lot about priorities. And, you know, unless you're a company that that isn't doing much, you know, you've got a million priorities at any time. And, Everything's important, but at the same time, like that statement is true until you actually sit down and say, well, everything is important, but when you look at it through a certain slice of time, certain things become less important. What Agile helps you do, I think, is really, it's to create a bit of a product roadmap that always allows you to look at your innovation list as a series of things that are either well-defined and highly, and highly valuable at this point in time or in the near future, or are not well-defined and don't have clear value at this point, right? Right. And so I think that's really, the, that's one of the biggest things. And it's not even so much a hardcore process as it is a way of thinking is at any given point in time, your, your goal should be to drive the most value out of what that is. So when you look, you think of innovation and innovation, like I've played that game on lots of ends of the spectrum and I've been both on the bleeding edge and the more modest side. And I think that, when you look at it from the bleeding edge perspective is you have to take certain gambles on things you just don't know how they're going to go. You're working ahead of the adoption curve, right? In a best case scenario, you're working across the spectrum. Like where I am now, we have the opportunity to build some things that are, I think, uh, right in the right place from an adoption curve standpoint. So what we don't want to do is, especially in the category room, we don't want to create something that's so far out that, that like three people use it and those three people are confused, right? Want to create <laughs> because then, because then what you're not, you're not being consumer centric. You're, you're being sort of self-serving about it. You want to do things that you think is cool and you hope somebody is, is likes it. But at the end of the day, the criteria for success should be what's valuable to the business and what's valuable to the business will be what's valuable to the consumer. It's almost like an, a, a, an investment portfolio. You want to balance it. Like a certain percentage should be like way ahead and some should be uh, a little bit more should be just ahead and a little bit more right. Should be right at the sweet spot. And then maybe you're investing some time in some tech debt catch up, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I also love agile for the ability to maintain transitional backlogs and innovation backlogs and ways of looking at those backlogs, which brings me to our fifth cool thing of the day, which is uh, agility and models of thinking, which we're already right there. You've already introduced yeah. it. So, um, and it's really, it's right in there, yeah. it's really hard to talk about innovation with agile. We had this conversation the other day, like somebody yeah. was saying, well, what about clients who want innovation platforms that aren't agile? And I was like, what are they? <laughs> but, I don't, I don't it's know. the only platform we have. I have every confidence that something new will come out that will replace well, agile. At the moment. Mean, well, and, and the reason, you know, this, will, this I think will come out more in our conversation now, but the reason yeah. you hear that is because it's, you know, uh, how do you say, everybody wants to drive the race car, but nobody wants to crash, right? And that's what it comes down to is yes. that, to be innovative, you have to assume a certain amount of risk. You have to you have to look at a certain amount of uncertainty, but you also have to be designed. And that always, that doesn't always indicate that innovation is dangerous and may or may not work out. It indicates that you have to be innovation inherently is being a step ahead, right? It's pushing the boundaries of your category, your business, whatever it is. Um, and inherently, when people ask for things like that, like what's a non-agile way of doing things, it is based on a couple of biases. One is that people want to mitigate as much risk as possible in being innovative. 
but yeah. say that they're being innovative. The other part of it is that <laughs> a lot of people have the stigma around agile that it's basically like, you know, as, a, as opposed to traditional, it's like, well, you have no idea what's going to happen. We can't work like that. Like we have to work against concrete note variables and a concrete outcome because it's about that's how we're going to calculate ROI and that's how we're going to do this. And, you know, I think that's why inherently you hear that people want to grow, but they don't want the pain with it. And I don't think it is pain. I think it's just accepting. It's a shift in mindset that in itself is inherently painful for people, especially yeah. everything else, but particularly when money's on the line, right? Like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So. Right. Well, I'm, I'm always trying to like, one of the things I do in facilitating innovation processes is, is, is I try to set us up with a game that um, has very low stakes. It's goofy. Like we're going to talk about the Marvel right. universe for a while. We're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. I find out, I do a little like, you know, spying and find out what people's fandoms are. And we play, and we play a game that is replicating the innovation process we're about to do, but it takes all of the stakes of uh, revenue and like, uh, you know, shareholders, stakeholders out of it and just allows us to play and do the process with a, with a sense of joy and playfulness and then brings us back to the serious task and we've uh, gotten lubricated and loosened up and realize that that you do have to like you know think about it uh, a little bit separate from those things even though we've been conditioned to be dri driven by this ROI mindset which we talked about earlier as yeah. opposed to investment right it's not about the ROI it's where do you put your next investment and then the ROI takes itself takes care of itself um, it's also another really interesting th thing that you're saying here is that, um, you know, like what, what is that mindset, right? That mindset that people have. And um, I, I can't help but think of this perceptual phenomenon that people have and, and that speed of change we've been talking about, uh, which is dizzying. Uh, when you stand next to a train and it starts moving, you can temporarily get the illusion that you are moving too. Have you ever experienced that? Yep. Yep. And so a lot of times clients think you said they want to have no risk and be called innovative. A lot of times climate clients are coming to us just to achieve parity with the current moment. But it, to them, it feels like innovation because everything's moving so fast. They feel like they're moving too, but they're not. What they're actually we're having to do is do some catch up. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. I cannot stop obsessing about the speed of change. I know it's a cliche in today's world, but, but, but no, I mean, it's, it's next week talks about the fact that we used to live through industrial revolutions a hundred years at a time. And now we're going to go through two, three of them in one lifetime. And how will optimal human performance adapt to that speed of change? It's really fascinating to watch. Right. And it's really going to be fascinating to watch what happens I like the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, they put her in that, like the seat with the seatbelt. And she's like, the aliens didn't tell us to do that. Don't put me. No, we have to because of safety, because of risk. And they put her in it. And as, and as she gets closer to achieving light speed or whatever it is that's supposed to be happening, either in her mind or in reality, that everything starts to shake in that seatbelt in that, in that seat. The seat flies. becomes unconnected. And it flies off. And then everything comes quiet and peaceful, right? right? And that's what I feel like the moment we're in is everybody's trying to buckle into the seat and the seatbelt that the alien that should we trust the alien intelligence that brought it here? And shouldn't we trust that change is a good thing and that we're propelling ourselves and hurtling ourselves towards yeah. a better future? Uh, I love that moment. I love that moment because it also is a sense of it's a bit of like trusting the environment too, because you yes. know, if you, you know, we are designed inherently from a personal standpoint, from a business standpoint, this is where Agile comes in. I'm sure we're going to talk about this now, but we are in high, it, it inherently designed to avoid change 
to rely on knowns and also to mitigate to to satisfy that by like you said buckling ourselves in as much as possible and the biggest inherent flaw in all of that is we assume that we have complete control of right. our environments right. personally or professionally where we're specs on a bigger on a bigger rock right and in the business world it's the same like you could be the you could be a huge market player dominant in your category smart growing well at the end of the day there is always a degree of that that the market is kind of allowing you to do right yeah. And the thing is, ultimately, good organizations can see a little bit of the future and also accommodate, learn from the past, you know, do the right thing in the present and then be ready for the future. But they're not necessarily always setting the pace. We're all subject to changes in the environment. I mean, the whole, I mean, it can't not talk about COVID right now. Last, you know, almost two years has completely upended the market and the way business is done. It is buried some business models, it has escalated others, it has forced rapid change. Even prior to this, we we're already in a pretty hot trajectory, it's forced rapid change. And, you know, I saw there's, you know, there's a, one of these things going, I think it's Instagram pretty much is like, okay, post, post the last picture before the pandemic started when you thought, when you didn't know what was coming, right? Oh, and, wow, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, yeah, it's one of these things where there's like a prompt for it, so your friend posts it that you can jump on to the same thing, it goes, it goes, it goes. But the point was, is that anybody who said, okay, we got the next year figured out, we got that stuff bulletproof was inherently it was wrong, right? Okay. And not because they did something wrong, because you can't see the future and you don't control the environment. So what is better? Do you fight against it by buckling in and going like this and be like, I'm not going to be thrown off course? Or do you take the seatbelt off and you're like, if the ship turns this way, I'm going to navigate with, with it. it. Turns that way, no matter which way it turns. Steer into the skid. Steer into the Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I'm yeah. My job is to stand up straight and not hit the side. And that's kind of what it is, right? So. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really, that's really interesting. It's, uh, it's the COVID idea too. What really fascinated me about COVID is that it accelerated changes that were already at play that people were deeply invested in resisting, like the work from home model yeah. and the and the remote and and why in the world are we in this tailorist nine to five industrial thing? Like we're all still working in factories and people have been like, even now people are navigating the return to work policy. And, and I'm just sort of laughing, you know, some people will want to come into offices, but the idea that we're ever going to go back to that nine to five clock in clock out in a physical space um, is, is just unrealistic. We're in the digital you know, future where we're going to be doing hybrids of both physical and, and virtual space, and it's not going away. But I've been wondering about this. 1998, I was, that's when I got my first consulting business off the ground. And my first client was Bayer Pharmaceutical, and they gave me a laptop and a cell phone. In 1998, right? And um, I was working in New York City, going to NYU, doing theater, as you know, from my background, and I was consulting and people were just astonished. My landlord was like, I never see you go to work. I just see you go out at night. And I said, because I'm working from upstairs. And that was in 1998. So it's been possible since then. Um, right. I also laughingly, like not laughingly, it's just a funny story. I also said to the IT people, in my mind, if I had a cell phone, and a laptop, I should be able to get on the internet in, in the train. That was just the way I thought, 
And I said, so can I um, like use this as a modem on the train? And the IT department was like, <laughs> how funny. She thinks she can get the internet on the, on the train. Well, <laughs> who has the last laugh now, right? But anyway, it's just, it's just funny how um, all these things were all, always possible. And it took the shock of the new, the shock of the, of the pandemic to fully leverage these capabilities that were implicit to our technological advance anyway. So I look forward to seeing what we liberate in the future with the next set of shocks that come around. Because while, you know, this is not the new normal, hopefully the pandemic is not the new normal, disruption is the new normal. I think we've all come to accept that. Hey, Fred Garen Tabby, so great to have you on the show. So honored to have you here. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.